If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Asaias. Today on the show, we take a look at the shadow world where pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs operate to influence drug prices. Joining us is Antonio Chacha, the CEO of 46 Brooklyn Research, an Ohio nonprofit corporation whose purpose is to improve the accessibility and usability of U.S. drug pricing data. PBMs are a meaningful part of the U.S. drug supply chain, but until just recently, their outsized role has been hidden in the shadows. Antonio has been on the front lines introducing transparency into the prescription drug marketplace. Let's talk about the state of PBMs. All right, Antonio, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, great to be with you, Gunnar. Let's let's just jump right into it. Uh, here, number one question, what is a pharmacy benefit manager? The pharmacy benefit manager is probably one of the most overlooked and under uh, or misunderstood members of the prescription drug supply chain. Uh, from a patient perspective, you probably have never even known what uh, a PBM's impact on you is. Uh, if you've ever flipped over your insurance card, it may say Anthem or Aetna on the front, but on the back, it'll say something about pharmacy. It'll have probably a phone number on there. And that leads to your PBM. Uh, uh, some of the largest PBMs in the world, CVS, Caremark, Express Scripts, OptumRx, they ultimately started to facilitate the transaction at the pharmacy counter. So when you show up to a pharmacy, you dropped off your prescription, you've got your insurance card. Your insurance company ultimately governs the pharmacy benefit, but the insurance company has more often than not outsourced it to a little known claims processor known as a PBM. And they started really small and just basically said, look, your pharmacist would ping them, the PBM would come back and say, hey, here's what you charge the patient from a copay perspective. And they really were acting like a Visa or MasterCard just for the drugs. But over time, as our reliance on prescription drug coverage grew, and the prices of medications grew, um, state Medicaid programs, Medicare plans, and commercial employers look to PBMs to say, don't just pay the claim, maybe start influencing the claim. Should I pay for this drug? How much should I pay for that drug? Which pharmacy should you go to? Which one should you not go to? And so PBM started to basically not just process the claim, but start influencing the claim. That ability to influence the claim, whether that's paying pharmacies lower, paying drug makers less, et cetera, et cetera, created a huge opportunity for growth for PBMs, where they were originally brought in to control the prices of medications from the drug maker and the pharmacy perspective. They've actually now grown to be the largest members of the drug supply chain. They're actually larger than the drug makers and pharmacies themselves at this point. They are Fortune 15 companies and they have a central role in determining which medications will be covered and how much you will pay out of pocket as a patient. So this is a, seems like it's a critical part of, like you said, the drug supply chain, but not something that too many people even know that they're affiliated with in some loose way. 
Um, there's a lot of conversations about drug pricing in this country right now. Obviously, the federal government is considering different legislation to either rein in drug pricing, cap it, force negotiations, or or not. Remains rather, you know, we're we're recording today on November 5th, so it remains to be seen whether or not that kind of legislation gets passed. But presently speaking, today the day that we were recording this podcast, what role do pharmacy benefit managers have in drug pricing? So um, PBMs will advertise themselves as the only member of the drug supply chain that's working to control prescription drug costs. Um, and a lot of what, what our research has been centered on is, is looking at the incentives that they have to actually do just that. And, um, and so in that research, we see different ways that PBMs are compensated or make money. And, and when they make money, recognize that any member of the drug supply chain, when they make money, ultimately somebody bears that cost. And usually that's either going to be a plan sponsor, an employer, or a patient downstream at the point of sale. Um, and what we find is that rather than PBMs working to lower drug prices, we find that they work to lower the, the cost for the medications for them to acquire. So let me explain. So rather than uh, in, a, in a more transparent, open marketplace that you and I would be more familiar with, let's use a grocery store as an example. All right. When we go buy a gallon of milk at the local grocery store, if the price of a, of a gallon of milk is $15, $20, you and I both know we've been ripped off. Um, however, with prescription drugs, who the heck knows what the price of lisinopril or aripiprazole should be at any given moment of, of, of a year. So PBMs ultimately work to try to, well, they're supposed to work to find a competitive price for those medications when going out and purchasing it from pharmacies and or drug makers. So let's use a brand drug as an example. In a traditional marketplace, if Kroger or Giant Eagle or insert your grocery store name there, uh, were to charge you $20 for a gallon of milk, you and I would say, we're not going to that grocery store anymore. They're ripping me off. And our decision to not purchase that product creates pressure on the company to lower the cost of milk to attract us in to purchase it. So the price, the actual price that is on the sticker of that gallon of milk will change in response to market dynamics. On the drug side, with brand drugs specifically, rather than the marketplace saying, we're not going to purchase that, PBMs who are facilitating the purchase on our behalf via our insurance policies go to a drug maker and say, well, you know what? I don't like that price. That price bothers me. I'm not going to pay it. And so rather than the drug makers responding by lowering the prices, what they do is they offer rebates and discounts off the list prices of those medications. Now, drug makers are for-profit companies, just like anybody else in the drug supply chain. And what we know in business is that when anybody is required to give a discount or a rebate or tax them, that ultimately a for-profit business is going to cook that into the business model when setting prices in the market for the goods and services they sell. That's exactly what happens with drugs, where instead of lowering their prices to attract PBMs to purchase or cover them on your formulary, instead what drug makers do is increase the concession or what we typically call rebates or I like to effectively call kickbacks and say, look, we're not gonna cover that drug unless you give us those big concessions. The drug makers then respond, instead of lowering that price, they raise the price and increase the discount back to the PBM, 
creating a perverse incentive for the PBM to uh, favor drugs that have higher rebates and concessions over drugs that might be a more effective or actually cheaper to the overall healthcare system. So now my understanding of the way sort of PBMs operate is uh, those rebates that they're getting from a drug company or a kickback as certainly sounds like you're describing uh, is like the precise thing that's reported during an earnings call, right? So those rebates are exactly what their investors and shareholders sort of want to see to, to suggest that the PBM is quote unquote profitable. Um, which sort of runs counter to, I think, the way that I traditionally learned about PBMs in school, where, you know, it was presented as, um, you know, a giant organization that's able to control market share and sort of dictate that prices should be lower for patients at the pharmacy when they're paying for drugs. Uh, there seems to be a conflict there. Why is there, why does that conflict exist? Where, can you trace where that maybe has kind of been uncovered and why, we're figuring out about it, you know, when it seems like we're in the middle of what some might consider to be a, a drug pricing crisis in the country. Yeah, for for um, for patients and consumers who don't uh, who aren't masochistic enough to work their way through uh, Senate Finance Committee investigative PDFs, um, there was a great investigation from the U.S. Senate Finance Committee uh, about a year or so ago that looked into the dysfunctional nature of insulin pricing. And so when I talk about PBMs, I usually talk to talk about them in the framework that they are both an arsonist and a firefighter when it comes to prescription drug prices. And what I mean by that is, is that if you look at the insulin report that was generated by Senator Chuck Grassley and Senator Ron Wyden in the previous Congress, what they showed was that in a competitive marketplace, or at least semi-competitive marketplace, where you have three large insulin drug maker, drug manufacturers who ultimately have a lion's share of the marketplace. Now, three may not sound like a tremendous amount of competition, but when you're talking about brand drugs that are comparable and can be substitutable, you're talking about something that should over time actually decrease costs. And the truth is, is that from the drug maker's perspective, the drug costs were going down, but they weren't lowering the prices. So what was happening was that as PBMs pitted drug makers against one another, to compete in order to obtain access to the PBM formulary, which is the gatekeeper into the patient's body, ultimately dictating the drug maker's market share. What they found was that drug makers competed by raising prices and increasing discounts along the way. To give you an idea of how significant that dynamic got, uh, the most recent, there was an article out of Axios uh, in July of this year that looked at the price of Lantus. It was one of those popular insulin products on the marketplace made by Sanofi. The list price for a vial of Lantus is $284. However, when you factor in all the discounts and price concessions made by Sanofi to PBMs, government programs, et cetera, the net price, the amount that they actually took in on that $284 vial of insulin was less than $40. So you're talking about the real price of a medication being 13% of the list price of that medication. So what happens is, is that that competitive dynamic, so PBMs are right when they say they're working to lower the cost of medications. The question then is, what happens to everyone else as a result of those competitive dynamics? Because the competition isn't lowering the real price, it's just lowering the price that they are able to negotiate from those drug makers. 
And so now that the list price has been pumped up to $284, we all as consumers need the PBM in order to extinguish the very fire that they created. And so that dynamic plays out across a number of categories of drugs, especially where you see a deg any degree of competition uh, amongst brand drug makers because the costs don't go down or the prices don't come down. They actually just get further and further from reality. So I would love to know like where the individual patient on the micro level falls into that equation. Yeah, so uh, most patients, all right, uh, I, actually, I shouldn't say most anymore because we're seeing more and more patients being tossed into high deductible health plans, okay? But a lot of patients will never experience the, the, the sourness of that system because they either have a fixed copay, they might have no copay, um, but they don't get to see the, the awful system that's happening behind the shelter of that small artificially low copay. However, if you're a patient who's uninsured, underinsured, or if you're in a high deductible health plan, all of these list prices become very, very real. And what we see in the insulin space, and we see across categories of drugs, is that when prices of medications for patients out of pocket become prohibitive, we see higher and higher degrees of rationing or medication noncompliance because the patient can no longer afford that, that, uh, that medication. So from a dysfunction standpoint, I'd like to, I, I, I'd pose this. So you have a $284 list price medication. As we've just said, the average price that a PBM is likely procuring this medication for is just pennies on the dollar relative to its actual cost. Well, as I said at the onset, PBMs are responsible for setting the co-pays that patients pay out of pocket. So any patient that is paying more than $50 or so for Lantus out of pocket, that means you're getting ripped off because the PBM is using you and the other patient lives who need that product to shake down the manufacturer for higher and higher discounts. The PBM gets those discounts, but they're the ones that choose not to push them back through to the patient and charge them an exceptionally high rate as a copay while collecting the rebate from the drug maker. Now, to me, that does make sense why some patient advocates and some patient groups, and I guess I would be included in this as well, are suggesting why out-of-pocket reform is really the number one problem that patients may feel, right? That high out-of-pocket costs that are sometimes associated with drugs uh, are a substantial barrier. But on the other side, there are some who suggest that the moral hazard of insurance needs to play some role and patients need to feel some burden of cost. Um, as, a, as a point of guess, I like, is showing both sides of this argument. Um, but from what it sounds like you're saying is this out-of-pocket cost problem is being exacerbated by PBMs in some cases. Without question, and, and, I, and I'd, I'd like to draw on those two points that you just made. So on one side, you know, an argument could be, could be made that let's say we want to expose patients uh, to some certain degree of cost share. They need to have some, you know, quote, skin in the game. Uh, but I want to I want to focus less on that and more on the word that you use, and that is insurance. And that's what we all talk about: health insurance. Uh, unfortunately, health insurance ain't health insurance anymore. What we typically call it is managed care. So managed care is different than health insurance because now you have a quote insurance company that's responsible for managing the overall you know, body of care, almost from a population health perspective. But that ain't health insurance. 
if I was buying health insurance, okay, I would draw I would draw a comparison directly to car insurance. When I buy car insurance, it's for when I I get rear-ended or I rear-end somebody else, or if I total my car, et cetera. Something that I didn't predict or that I couldn't account for happens to me. My car insurance steps in to foot the bill for that for that um, for that issue. Health insurance, if it was operating the same way, would a, would the exact same things would occur. If a patient becomes ill, if a patient becomes sick, ultimately that's when your insurance is supposed to take care of the un, the thing that you could not predict from a financial perspective and insulate you from the cost of that of that issue. Well, that's not what's happening here. In fact, because of the way that rebates are, are, are designed, PBMs make more and more money off rebates when more and more patients have to take drugs that have rebates attached to them. So you have patients that are paying more and more out of pocket and generating more and more rebates for PBMs, but that's the opposite of insurance, all right? Now it's the sick subsidizing everybody under the insurance plan rather than what insurance is supposed to be, which is the other way around, which is insurance existing to help a patient when they have a time, a, 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 an a, a, a weird time of need. We'll be right back with Antonio Chacha. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So it, it sounds like policymakers are sort of starting to catch on to something happening that shouldn't be happening under what would be considered a perfect market. Uh, you know, last week I read that you testified in front of the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee meeting at the Ohio State House, and you suggested exactly what you've suggested here on the podcast so far that Medicaid reimbursements were dropping, but overall drug spending has gone up in the state. Uh, why did you feel the need to testify? So, so um, the, uh, I'll draw back to the other point that you were making on patient out of pocket. So one of the things that you know, folks have been saying is, well, maybe we can solve these problems by just eliminating this hard issue of patients having to pay too much out of pocket. A counter argument to that has been, well, that just hides the problem, right? You know, if it, that drug makers and PBMs and insurance companies won't feel the heat if patients aren't being exposed, at least in some way, shape, or form, to these egregious out-of-pocket costs, and it doesn't solve the underlying issues. That last point, let's, we'll take off from there, because in Medicaid, most people pay nothing out-of-pocket, okay? It, most Medicaid beneficiaries get their, get their drugs for free. So let's just say we were to solve the out-of-pocket issue by saying no patient anywhere has to pay any money out-of-pocket for their medications. Now what you've done is you've essentially put a curtain over this huge dysfunctional system that's living behind us. And so let's talk about what's happening in the state of Ohio. I was previously working with the Ohio Pharmacists Association, uh, where pharmacists across the state were complaining about massive cuts in reimbursement through the Medicaid Managed Care Program. They saw about a 60 to 80 percent drop in their, in, their mar in their gross margins within the program in the summer of 2016. The bottom fell out. And for pharmacies that were operating in high Medicaid underserved areas, 
they were closing their doors. We lost about 200 pharmacies over the course of about three years where these massive cuts were taking place. I turned around to state officials and asked them, hey, what gives, you know, what happened in the program that caused these pharmacies to all of a sudden experience this financial earthquake? And they looked at me like I had worms crawling out of my eyes because they said, we've never spent more for prescription drugs than we are right now. And so there was a disconnect there. How could pharmacies see these massive cuts in reimbursements for drugs dispensed to Medicaid patients without the Medicaid program not see the benefits of those savings? Well, that sent us off on a journey where we started, um, we, we were not getting good answers from the State Department of Medicaid. And so we said, screw it, we're gonna try and solve this issue ourselves. So we started finding uh, data that was available on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services website or CMS. There were two data sets specifically, one called National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, which tracks the average prices that pharmacies pay to acquire drugs and put them on the shelf. And there's another data set called CMS State Drug Utilization Data, which is a quarter by quarter, drug by drug breakdown for every state Medicaid program in the country of what the cost of medications were to the states that paid for those uh, prescriptions. We stitched those together, a colleague of mine that I, that I met named Eric Packman, and voila, the answer opened up. The real prices of the drugs were going down, but the cost of the state were going up. Now, I didn't know a ton, but I knew that with knowing that the pharmacies were getting paid less, it didn't make sense at all that the, the state was getting charged more. So my background was actually journalism. Uh, after the state of Ohio officials weren't giving me answers, uh, I walked out of a meeting with the State Department of Medicaid, crossed a couple streets, and walked through the doors of the Columbus Dispatch, which is a local newspaper covering essentially everything uh, having to do with the, uh, within the state government. I sat down with a couple reporters. I laid out what we had learned. Um, at the end of our conversation, there, there were birds kind of flying around their head. Uh, and they said, all right, well, we think there's probably a big story here, uh, maybe two or three. Uh, fast forward the tape, there's been over 200 stories that the Columbus Dispatch has done in their side effects investigative series. It's now won national awards. Um, our state auditor decided that they were going to open the books. And voila, after they did, uh, our state auditor, Dave Yost, who's now uh, attorney general in the state of Ohio, found that there was a massive gap between what PBMs were paying pharmacies within the program and what they were then turning around and billing the state department of Medicaid. That gap was worth $244 million in just one year of our state Medicaid program uh, and resulted in massive litigation uh, that is actually still kind of uh, in the works today and extrapolated to states across the country. Um, it was just one little view into how PBMs, one way that PBMs can use their, um, the complexity of prescription drug pricing to pad profits uh, within the middle of the transaction. So that $244 million that you're referring to, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that like the spread pricing that exists at the heart of the PBM business model and is sometimes referred to as a profit? If I'm understanding it correctly, is that what that is? Yeah, it's specifically spread pricing. And that's when they pay the pharmacy low, bill the state or the plan sponsor mm -hmm. high and pocket the delta. Uh, it is uh, over time, it's become an actually less emphasized part of the PBM business. But I think the most recent stats I saw is that spread pricing might account for about seven to 
of the total profits that PBMs bring in annually. But that's an enormous number that the state of Ohio had suddenly had to realize. Which I think shows you just how much money they're making outside of spread pricing as yeah. well. Uh, we're talking via, via about rebates. Exactly. Rebates, specialty pharmacy fulfillment. There's a lot of different ways that PBMs can make money. But $244 million in a program that was you know, essentially meant to provide benefits and drugs to the poor, that's a tremendous amount of money. Um, it ultimately, the state, when they revealed their own audit, they showed that PBMs were making about three to six times the going rate for their services. So we're talking about six times as much as the actual cost. The state since fired the PBMs and is moving to a more transparent model, which is what I talked about at the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee uh, last week, which is expected to save the state about $220 million annually. Which is money guaranteed by the taxpayers at the end of the day. That's exactly right. We're all paying for it. So it sort of sounds like you're driving towards some sort of PBM regulation here, if I'm reading between the lines. What, um, what would that look like on a macro level, not just in the state of Ohio, but for commercial plans or for, for Medicare? What, what does a better PBM look like? Because it sounds like PBMs certainly do have some role in this, in, in, in purchasing drugs for, for pharmacies, but what, what does a perfect PBM look like and can, it, can that happen? So ultimately, I, 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 I'm a drug pricing nerd. I'm not a policy expert, but I have a good idea of how to better align systems. And so a lot of the work that we do is we do drug pricing research. We work with Medicaid fraud control units. We work with state attorney generals. We work with research institutions, but we also work with state departments of Medicaid. And we also work with employers who are also looking to grapple with these uh, evolving issues within the drug supply chain that result in excess cost to them paying. The because bill. for an employer, that there's also a cost there as well. For a self-insured company that is essentially paying out the insurance costs across their huge workforce, I imagine they too are also feeling the burden of extraordinarily high uh, cost loss to, 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 to some perverse incentives here, I would imagine. There are, I'll, I'll give you context. There are hundreds of people that work at the Ohio Department of Medicaid. And under their nose, you know, private industry was, was taking $244 million that when, when tabulated was at least, you know, $180 million more than they should have been taking, all right? Most small businesses, mid-sized businesses don't have hundreds of people that are, that, are, that are on staff trying to wrangle with these issues. And so for many, they're essentially giving a lot of trust to the marketplace, trust that isn't earned. Uh, and so many times we actually see these problems even worse within self-insured plans wow. because, uh, because the, um, the gamesmanship can be so significant and there's such a disconnect between, uh, within understanding. At the end of the day, PBMs can make money through spread pricing, but really that's just an example of how they take advantage of something more significant, which is an asymmetry of information. They know what the cost, what the real costs of medications are and have an arbitrary ability to set the dial in a different way on the other end of the spectrum. And there are many ways that they can accomplish that. They can do that from getting big rebates from drug makers, which, is, which as we've established, can create artificially high prices of those medications in the first place. If they retain any of those rebates and concessions, that's a perverse incentive for them to want higher and higher drug prices, all right? They also can make money through spread pricing, paying pharmacies low, billing plant sponsors high, 
pocketing the difference. That's another perverse incentive that they have an ability to arbitrarily set huge markups over the cost of medications purchased at pharmacies. But we haven't even talked about this. We've been talking about PBMs as claims processors, but what they also are are pharmacies. PBMs, the largest PBMs own mail order pharmacies and specialty pharmacies, and they can tell patients that they have to get their medications filled at the pharmacies they own, which gives them the ability to move money downstream and overpay their pharmacies subjectively for medications that they can force a patient to go and access at the pharmacies they own. So there's a number of ways that they can create these hidden markups within an overly complex system. So when, for, uh, if your question is, how do we fix these things? There's a number of ways that you could do that, but most of them center around increased transparency, moving them to essentially a single line item of compensation and putting them in a more fiduciary role where they have to serve the interests of the plan sponsor and not necessarily serve the interests of just their shareholders. Now we've characterized them, I think, throughout this conversation as being, you know, is, is somehow you know, overly negative. There are good PBMs out there. We have seen them, but because the transaction has become so complex, any for-profit company has to do what they can to maximize margin. Yes. And so we see there's too many opportunities for them to do so. And so by simplifying the transaction, I think you create a better opportunity to actually restore PBMs to their true function, which is making prescriptions more efficient and accessible. State of Health, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So you're talking about now moving towards what a PBM should maybe look like in their true function. And that... It leads me to one of my last questions here, and it's about Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban's always making news somewhere, um, but recently he's decided that he's going to get into drug making. And first, it was with his cost plus drug idea, where it's sort of returning the value of generic drugs to the American people by producing them here at home. Um, and we we had Peter Kolchinsky, uh, venture capitalist, on the show a few months back where we talk about the shift from brand drugs to, to generic drugs and the, the value that they provide to society after a drug goes generic, sort of like paying a mortgage on a home, paying a mortgage on a branded drug to eventually owning, you know, society owning a, a generic drug. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back to it. Um, and that's sort of what Mark Cuban is doing with his cost plus drug company. Now, all of a sudden, he's getting involved with PBS because I think it sounds like really a lot of the work that Columbus Dispatch is doing and what sounds like your office led the Columbus Dispatch doing as well is sort of pulling the curtain back on some of these PBMs. And it sounds like, and you're right, that we maybe have been sort of characterizing them as, you know, people doing the wrong thing, but they should be able to, in theory, bring drug prices down by controlling market share and acting on the, on behalf of patients. And it sounds like that's what Mark Cuban is trying to do. Do you think he can succeed in doing this? So first off, a uh, ton of respect for Peter Kulczynski. Uh, yeah, I've I, I read his most recent book. It's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a very objective look at, you know, ways to better align system incentives across the drug channel. Um, but the point around generic drugs, I think, is really important because, you know, this U.S. drug pricing system is built in a way that we as society 
decided to give drug makers a patent, which gives them a license to make the make a product and charge whatever they want for it or whatever the market will bear. And we do that with an understanding that we want them to have incentives to bring new innovative products to market. And there's a catch is that at the end of that patent, ultimately, we all get the recipe to the secret sauce and generic drug makers can come in and beat the heck out of each other to actually lower the cost of medication significantly relative to what they were when they were innovator brand drug. And then the cycle replenishes over and over again. If drug makers want to make more money, they need to essentially stave off, you know, they need to basically make sure that they replenish their pipeline so they have new products they could charge what the market bears and so on and so on. And then hopefully we all as, as, as future patients or current patients get the benefit of those innovative treatments. That's how it's supposed to work in theory. Now, do we always get innovative treatments? Eh, you know, sometimes we see some follow-on products that aren't really all that valuable, which begs the question of why PBMs cover them in the first place, but we won't go down that road. Um, but on the generic side, a lot of the spread pricing problems that we saw in the marketplace were specifically related to uh, generic drugs. Um, so PBMs were paying very low on generic drugs because the real prices of those medications are very cheap. However, the list prices of those generic drugs are actually even more disconnected from reality than brand name drugs themselves. And so when PBMs set contracts with self-insurers or Medicaid programs, et cetera, they're all doing it as a percentage off of the list prices of those medications, both brand and generic drugs. So what Mark Cuban tried to do with his cost plus drug company was to say, okay, we know that the list prices of these generic drugs are stupid and way overinflated relative to their actual costs. What we're going to do is unlike many, a, a lot of other drug makers in the marketplace, say for maybe Civica RX, we're going to bring the drug to market and we're going to charge a 15% markup to our bare bones, bare bones cost to produce that medication. So they brought a drug to market called albendazole. And uh, that drug, they released it out into the marketplace. And a few people definitely, uh, definitely obtained it and saved money off of it. But across the board, most pharmacies and drug wholesalers chewed it up and spit it out. They had no desire for it. Well, why, why is that? Why don't wholesalers and pharmacies have the right incentives to buy the cheapest products available in the marketplace? Well, that's because that, that pharmacy contracts with PBMs are all based as a percentage off of the list prices of medications. So again, you have a problem where list prices become the, the main governing body of everybody's incentives within the prescription drug supply chain. And because pharmacies don't want to get paid 85% off of Mark Cuban's already low sticker price product, they don't want to purchase it because they'll be underpaid for it. And so what Cuban has now realized is, is holy crap, it's not that we just have a drug, uh, a drug pricing problem, we have a drug supply chain problem. And so what Alex Oshmiansky, the CEO of their, uh, of their drug company, and really Mark Cuban's entire kind of uh, pharmaceutical endeavors uh, is doing is saying, all right, the supply chain from top to bottom is broken. We're going to replace it. We're going to build something entirely new in order to change it. Now, the question is, will they be successful? Great question. Right now, almost everybody continues to basically uh, sign up for the old way yeah. because it's the only way we've ever known. And so it's going to take simplifying the problem and convincing more and more employers, state governments, state Medicaid programs, and even Medicare programs eventually to say that there is a better way 
rather than relying on a system that is completely wedded to these artificially inflated prices, maybe we need to build a system around the real prices of these medications, especially when it comes to the generic drugs, which is supposed to be the pressure valve release for those incoming innovative products. And to me, it sounds like that's like the utopian version, right? And once we can get there, things would presumably get better within the American healthcare system. Like that's the efficient market at equilibrium that we're just unable to get to right now. That's exactly right. It, it, it's, it's become so tangled up and complex. And this is partly why we do what we do, right? We are the enemy of complexity. If, if you could boil uh, uh, you know, what we do down to anything is that we stand for the disruptive simplification of the prescription drug transaction. And, and with mystery comes margin, we want to eliminate mystery. It's not that members of the drug supply chain don't deserve margin from top to bottom, but we as consumers who are all paying for this garbage deserve to have a better idea of how incentives are designed and where margin is being distributed. Because at the end of the day, we don't wanna buy waste and excess and fat we want to buy a high superior, a high quality service and a high quality product. And right now, all middlemen, all members of the drug supply chain are making their living by creating further and further distance from the real prices of things versus what they charge. And we need to simplify that because we all deserve the savings or at least a leaner, meaner system. Where can, all, where can our listeners learn more about this if they want? So uh, I run, I'm the CEO of a nonprofit called 46 Brooklyn Research. You can see all of our publicly available work at 46brooklyn.com. Uh, and I also do consulting services through a company I, uh, I'm president of called Three Axis Advisors. Uh, you can learn more about us at threeaxisadvisors.com. Well, Antonio, thanks for coming on the show. This was a great lesson into the world of pharmacy, health benefits, and uh, health economics. Uh, I know I learned a lot. This is this is definitely my jam. You described yourself as a drug pricing nerd. I think I'm right there with you. Um, so I may be biased, but I, I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Got it. Thanks a lot for what you do. Uh, it's important to translate this for uh, for folks who the system happens to right. And uh, and ultimately, it's about all of us as, as patients and consumers. And very much appreciate the role that you have. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnarEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Antonio Chacha for today's interview. State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.